This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Total Saints Podcast 31. This is the dedicated weekly podcast that goes to the heart of all things Saints. So if you love Southampton Football Club and are interested in all the current affairs surrounding the Saints, then this is the place for you. My name is Ben Stanfield, at Ben Stanners on Twitter, and I'm the host of TSP. As ever, well predominantly, I'm joined by the Chief Sports Writer for the Daily Echo, Adam Leach. Adam, good to have you back with us again, and I believe joining live from the west coast of Scotland this weekend, having uh, flown up after the game yesterday, is that right? Yeah, that's right, Ben. Yeah, I am. Um... Had a bit of a mad dash yesterday. I, I was working at, obviously at the West Ham game, and then uh, a friend is getting married in uh, Scotland in Troon. Uh, so dashed across over across London to Heathrow and and got a flight up uh, late last night. And then, um, well, by the time the pod comes back, I'll be back home. So <laughs> it really is a flying visit. <laughs> Good stuff. And uh, I guess another one of those days, and we'll obviously talk about it in a bit more. Uh detail in a minute but another one of those days where uh, due to your job you kind of have to suffer and stay till the end unfortunately yeah that's right I'm just uh, obviously hoping that the um, wedding has a lot of wine on the table because I think I need something to help me forget <laughs> what, what happened especially in the first half no absolutely so well it's good to have you back with us um, obviously it's uh, Easter Sunday we're recording today so happy Easter to everyone um, ironically Adam it's also April Fool's Day which has seemed kind of ironic that uh, maybe you and I are the fools that we're doing a podcast uh, so early on a Sunday morning and uh, we were just about to talk about 14 fools that were running around in red and white shirts yesterday but there we go it does seem uh, slightly ironic but uh, Look, obviously we're going to talk more about yesterday's West Ham game, which I, uh, I don't think either of us can wait for. We'll also look through Saints' next uh, game and have a chat about that away at Arsenal next week.
weekend. There'll also be a chance to hear some of the best bits from the speeches at the VIP opening of Saints New We March On, then a now exhibition at the Sea City Museum in Southampton earlier this week as well. And that includes the likes of Laurie McMenemy, Matt Letizier, Councillor Satve Kaur, and even a brief cameo from Nelly Gao, daughter of the uh, Saints owner Gao Jisheng. This is Total Saints Podcast, episode 31. Saints put in a quite frankly disgusting and effortless performance at West Ham this weekend to very much leave them on the brink of any survival hopes. We didn't even manage a shot on target against a team who had lost their last three games at an aggregate of 11-2. to Adam, good luck with this question, but how do you sum up yesterday? Oh, oh, it was dreadful. I mean, the first half, it was worse than Newcastle. And we thought there was a that was a new low benchmark set in Newcastle. Well, they changed the manager. And uh, though I'm not for one second blaming Mark Hughes for this, mm-hmm. um, actually, things got worse, uh, right. to be honest. Um, that they were, they were much worse, <laughs> yeah. actually, than even Newcastle. And, and that seems quite hard to fathom that that could even be possible, really. Um, I think... What's disappointing is obviously it was such a such a massive game, such a colossal game. And um, I'm musing a little bit this morning on uh, a point that you made on the pod um, uh, some weeks ago about how much of this may be potentially a mental issue now. Um, and the reason that I say that and the reason it's sort of percolating in my brain somewhat is that Mark Hughes on Thursday in his pre-match press conference was was very much... Uh, full of, you know what, I've had most of this group for two weeks, I've trained with them. I, I, he was quite chippy, he was quite upbeat, you know, they've got, they seem to have the right attitude. I've got, and he was sort of like, I've got that sense, you can just feel it from a team, I've got that sense that they're kind of confident and they're, they're ready for this game, they're really up for this and, and, you know, this is going to be a big day for us. And we heard that several times from Maurizio Pellegrino as well. Mm. And invariably, it didn't really work out on the pitch other than one particular occasion. And it was interesting to hear exactly the same thing said about exactly the same group of players mm. from another manager mm. and then to see a performance that was dreadful, well, even worse than anything else we'd even seen. And it does it does make you think, well, there's clearly something about the mental state of the players. But I think also Mark Hughes was... Um, was damning after the yeah. game really in in his assessment there's nothing else he could do he you know he had to be honest and I, i'm sure that he appreciates that nobody blames him for for what's going on um he's just doing the best he can and i think now he really realizes what he's got to work with and i suspect from what he said we will see some significant changes because mm. i think i think reading between the lines of what he said and i could be getting this wrong but i think he was surprised by some of the attitudes of some of the players out there yeah um and i think there were a few even though a few of these guys cost an awful lot of money mm. um that we might not see again for the rest of this season now mm. because i don't think he was pretty he was at all impressed by some of them yeah and i think you know, you, you mentioned there, I mean, obviously Pellegrino has spoken about that. Even Claude, to a certain extent, was obviously let down by, as the, you know, we've, we've spoken about this group of players. I mean, this is, is almost a sort of 18-month, two-year group of players now. But, I mean, one thing that just constantly screams out at me, and I think many other fans, and you've spoken about it before, Adam, is, and it's so important when you're in situations like this, is there's, there is no leaders in this Southampton squad. There is no one. Even the Bertrand, you know, we've spoken about him before, about his attitude and whether he wants out and all those sorts of things. But there is not one player, really, across the pitch that is leading and, and getting them going and organising them. I mean, they just sort of seem to run around like headless chickens to a certain extent. 
Yeah, I mean, everything that you could find fault with with a football team, which includes a lack of leadership, was evident in that first half, especially against Newcastle. The whole match, really, but mm. particularly the first half, which was, um, you know, abysmal. To it was such a huge game um, against West Ham to um, to have given it away again by half time. Just absolutely ridiculous. I mean, the goals they conceded. I mean, Mark Hughes said catastrophic, mm. uh, catastrophic errors. And uh, you, you have to, you can only agree with that. And I think the thing is, it's such a huge game in the yeah. context of the season. And the, the problem is, I know, I'm sure we'll come on to talk about it, but the problem is they've left themselves in a position now where in order to stay up, they need to produce something, the likes of which they haven't done all season. Mm. And they need to produce that in the final seven games, which is a, a colossal ask. And especially when you played like that against against a relegation rival to then think you're just going to magically turn it around um, is is very, very hard to fathom. But a lack of leadership, for sure. And again, so I don't really want to single out players, but you do find yourself almost almost doing so. Some some players there who really should be offering an awful lot more than they have offered Mm. um, for the money that's been spent on them. Um, yes, okay, you might turn around and go, well, let's look at the recruitment. The recruitment's wrong if these guys aren't good enough. But there is a certain amount of, of a minimum that you expect from some people. And some of them, frankly, just aren't producing it. And I think what's what's really uh, disturbing to, to the fans and to watch from the outside is may, and maybe it is just a complete shattered confidence, mm. totally shattered in some individuals. Maybe that's what it is. But it comes across like a few of them don't even really care that much. And I think that that is what is really disturbing people. Um, And I think, as I said, again, reading between the lines of what Mark Hughes said, I think that's what disturbed him. And I think that's why we will see some uh, fairly significant changes. And we might well see that some of the technically better players Mm -hmm. we don't see again this season but we might see some of the technically inferior players but at least the ones that are going to give it a go yeah absolutely and I think that's been the and again we've spoken you know over the last few weeks we spoke about it with Lucy and Aidan last week is is this whole element that if you're going to go down you want to see the team going down with a with a fight and I think that's the the challenge and as you say I mean this was arguably the biggest game that Saints have had in in quite a few years bearing in mind the the fact that if they had won it it would have really given them some momentum towards the end of the season the fact that they didn't I mean they were lucky again Adam and we've spoken about this you know that the results went for them and somehow with one win in 18 they still somehow got a chance of staying up however you look at the next three fixtures and you wonder where they will be after those but I mean was there anyone that came out of it with any credit for Saints or was it you know just a collective three four out of ten yeah I can't really think of anybody who came out of it with much credit I would probably tip my hat slightly to Alex McCarthy who did make some good saves and was in the first half especially was probably uh, feeling well, what what on earth more have I got to do here? Other than that, I, I'm really struggling to think of anybody who mm. came out of it with any great credit. There were a couple who made mistakes and weren't great, but at least you could see they were plugging away. They were kind of trying at least. Yeah. Um, so yeah, okay, fair enough. But there were there were some that came out with with very uh, negative credit, if you like. Yeah, and, and as you said, such a massive game. I really felt that if they won that game. Mm that they would be okay. Mm. Not not so much that they would relegate West Ham, because I still think West Ham would probably have enough, given 
how injury ravaged they were yesterday as well. I mean, that's the one thing we mustn't uh, overlook is the fact that it was a great time to play West Ham, yeah. given everything that had happened at the London Stadium. They had a lot of players out injured, and then they lost more players in the couple of days before the game as yeah. well. So and then that, I mean, Antonio earlier And then Antonio, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. They're, they're probably their biggest attacking threat early on. I mean, we, they were virtually playing not far off of West Ham's reserve team, mm. to be completely honest. Mm. It, and, and Saints, with Austin back, more or less at, at full strength. Yep. Um, and I think that's what made it so disappointing. And looking uh, looking ahead as well, you're right. Um, but the thing about the other results going their way, but the thing I would say about that is just a slight caution that, of course, this weekend of all weekends, actually, the fixtures were such that Saints lost at West Ham. And you look at those... Who realistically are going to get dragged in now? Because there's yeah. not many. There's not actually many left. A it's lot of just them Huddersfield, are, really, isn't it? Huddersfield and Swansea, yeah. I would say. Yeah. Huddersfield, Swansea, Palace, Saint Stoke mm-hmm. uh, for the two places. Palace um, lost to Liverpool, mm-hmm. uh, not unexpected. Narrowly, they narrowly lost to Man United. But look at Palace's last six games. I was looking yesterday. They they've pretty much got just teams in the bottom half now to play yep. in the last six games. The way they're playing, they'll be okay. Mm-hmm. So we, I, th- I think you can almost discount them, I agree. barring a complete implosion or you know some serious injuries that affect them. But but Saints lost that game on a day that Palace were playing Liverpool, Swansea were playing Man United, yeah. Stoke this weekend we're recording before the result, but they were playing Arsenal. Yeah. So it was only Huddersfield who who had really a, a potentially winnable game. And they were playing Newcastle, who were also in it. And now Newcastle won that game, so Newcastle were out of it. So mm-hmm. um, so Huddersfield and Saints were really the significant losers. And what, look at the other fixtures coming up. Obviously, a lot of the other teams have we're going to have reverse weekends quite soon, where mm-hmm. we've got Saints playing Arsenal and Chelsea, big clubs, and we've got other teams not playing big clubs. If those weekends go badly... By the time Saints get to Wembley, they could almost be gone. Um, I think that's the truth, is that that now when you you get there, I think for a while, when you've got maybe 10, 15 games left, and you look at the table, and you think, oh, it's okay, you know, the results are almost one by one. But now you look, with so few games left, you're actually looking at the fixtures in their totality a little bit more across all the clubs. And you look at some of the weekends, and again, Saints are going to have to get results against some teams that you wouldn't expect them to now mm. because otherwise they are going to fall a long way behind and if they're not careful they will get cut adrift yeah. uh, quite quickly because once you get beyond a win behind if they fall four points uh, behind getting out uh, at some point in the next few weeks getting out becomes almost impossible yeah I mean when, when you sort of think about it and we you know we've spoken a number of times about this being a collective effort it's the players it's the manager it's the board to to some element it's maybe being some of the, the fans in terms of the atmosphere at St Mary's and all those sorts of things so there's no there's no sort of one issue that has caused all of this but if you if you think about Mark Hughes now does it kind of re-emphasize that Saints really should have made a decision a bit earlier on Pellegrino if they were going to get rid of him bearing in mind you know he, he now has seven games to go to, to sort of turn this around I mean he's seen a performance like like that yesterday which arguably if Wigan had had a bit more quality they could have been 2 or 3 up half time last week as well and that would have put a, a different emphasis on the game but it's, it's left him with so little time now Adam that do you think if there is to be any criticism the board and their sort of delay in making that decision of changing the manager is, is sort of the key one or do you think there is more to it than that? Well I think there's an awful lot of elements to this and we've discussed a lot of them on the pod and I'm sure that um, we will do more of a forensic deconstruction when the, when the time is appropriate um, but I think in terms of specifically 
changing the manager. I think there's um, there's two elements to that. In my view, you either had to make the decision earlier than they did, or if you were going to stick with Pellegrino, I'm not saying that that was completely the wrong decision because I understood their logic behind it, but you had to properly back him in January. You had to really, as we said numerous times when we were doing the pods over January and in the build-up to it, you, if you were going to stick with him, you had to give him more tools. Mm-hmm. As simple as that. It was not. It was simply not good enough to wait until the very end of the window to deliver him just Carrillo. Yeah. That was never going likely to be what he needed in order to turn things around. So when you you look at it, you think, well, they either had to back him properly, stick with him, and back him, and they got to the point where as I said numerous times around the period before Hughes came in, a little bit, what's the point? And I, I, I no, no disrespect to Mark Hughes because he might still keep them up and, I, you know, yeah. fair enough if he does. But you look at it now and you, you feel like we do after the West Ham game and you do think a little bit, well, what was the point? How much did they spend on getting rid of Pellegrino mm. uh, and getting in Hughes? And it's still the same group of players, etc. Mm. So if they, if they didn't, so it, it possibly is too late. It maybe may prove to be too late. It might not, but it may do. But if they were going to stick with Pellegrino, I think the the big error was not backing him properly in January and yeah. giving him Quincy Promise or Theo Walcott, whoever, whoever they could have got, yeah. maybe even another player as well. Actually, basically spent the Van Dijk money effectively. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a big problem, even with Carrillo. Um, all right, he's, we all know he's, he's obviously struggled um, since he arrived, but the guy arrived right at the very end of January in a deal that it didn't seem, on the from the outside at least, that it was probably all that complicated to do. Yeah. Even then, if he'd arrived right at the beginning of January, would he have had an extra few games, he'd have more time to settle in, and there was less pressure on him, etc., etc. So even then, he might have done better. So... It depends on what your viewpoint is, but I think there's clearly an error there. They either had to properly back him if they're going to stick with him in January, or that change had to come significantly earlier, certainly around the turn of the year, to give somebody else uh, a decent amount of time to to do something with the squad. We were talking about it on the podcast last week, Adam, that uh, the the club had announced the um, profits and... uh... Whilst it's very good viewing for the club in terms of sustainability, we were making the point, Aidan, Lucy and myself, that that profit is probably going to be very much, in terms of the fan base, is going to be seen as a good thing or a bad thing. If the club stay up and made a £40 million profit, brilliant. If the club go down and uh, have made a £40 million profit, it's not going to go down too well. Because I think, for all of those reasons you've just mentioned, it's going to look like, not necessarily penny-pinching, because that's uh, not necessarily the right term, but the fact that you know all over the pitch there looks to be weaknesses. Centre-back has been something that... Um, lots of fans have spoken about as well. You know, we haven't really strengthened there as well. So I think that's uh, that's going to be sort of one of the the key um, fallouts that I think will come over the next few weeks, depending on what does happen. And um, look, I know I know I get notoriously um, sort of grief for and um, being negative. Deep down, I actually thought Saints would win yesterday, and I, I fancied us to go up there with uh, you know a couple of weeks in that squad. And as you say, the injuries. But when I saw the lineup as well, Adam, I actually thought brilliant. He's going for it. You know, he's playing two up front. He's doing all the things that sort of some fans have clamoured for. Pellegrino has spoken previously. And, and Puel had about the fact that you know you can only play one up front, the two up front doesn't really work in the Premier League, and maybe that was the case yesterday. But what what did you sort of think of the lineup and the formation? I mean, it's easy to talk about it having lost the game three 0 but when you saw it at the start, I mean, what did you sort of think of the lineup that Hughes picked? Well, I mean, the first thing is there's probably some positives and one negative, and the one I'll start with the negative, and then we'll come on to the positives because it's a nicer way to do it, <laughs> and that is that. 
I do not understand why Oriol Romeo isn't playing. I just do not get it. Mm. I, I don't get it. Uh, I, I, and and it, it's very frustrating. Um, and again, I, you know, I don't want the single players out, but I, I suppose I'm going to here. And I thought Mario Lamina, again, was below poor mm. again. Mm. And I just don't get why Romeo is not playing. He might not technically be as good, but what does it matter? So for me, I, I don't understand that. But nonetheless, you know, I, I'm not going to criticise Mark Hughes for that. He's been here two minutes. I mean, he's still trying to get to grips with the squad. And of course, he didn't want to totally disrupt a team that had won at Wigan. And I, I understand that. And maybe he'll be one of the ones that will fall on his sword based on Hughes' comments, Lamina. Yeah, I, I, well, I think, I, well, I don't know exactly what will happen, but I'd be very surprised if Romeo didn't come in now uh, mm. for most of the remainder of the season. Um, assuming that he he plays okay. In terms of the positives, I, I think just a bit like I felt at Wigan, the, the very fact that the Hughes sent out a signal that he had recognised that scoring goals was a problem and that he wanted to attack, I thought was a good thing. I personally do quite like a four four two, but you've got to have the right people to play and you've got to play it in the right way. And uh, I don't think really Saints did that I, I wouldn't be surprised to see him retreat from that uh, formation now certainly before the game I asked him about the formation and he he sort of said well look I, I'm not stuck to 4-4-2 I, I'm pretty flexible and I, I'm just sort of having a look really at the moment and and that's kind of feels like obviously felt like the right way to go but it, it didn't work so I would suspect he'll change things around he obviously just wanted to get Austin in the team and to try and find the most effective way to build a team around Austin's goals, effectively. I think that's what he was after. Now, I mean, Austin played, he, he barely got a kick all game. I mean, he he got very little service. You know he needs good service. He's one of those players, that's what he thrives on, is good service into the box, and he got virtually none of that. So I wouldn't criticise him too much. But also, he has been out for a long time. He didn't look massively fit or sharp. So whether just continuing to flog him is the right answer in the hope that, that he comes good or a ball bounces his way in the box and he sticks it in the back of the net. I don't know. That's a difficult one for Hughes to weigh up. But I, I mean, I thought overall when I saw the team, I was like, yeah, that's good. It's positive. I think any of us who knew the players probably wasn't overly convinced when I saw that, that that kind of four four two would work. But I thought, well, at least it sent, sent the out a, a positive message. It's surely sending a message to the players to be on the front foot to, try and take the game to West Ham and acknowledgement that an early goal against West Ham could have been so pivotal on so many levels and, and at least it was positive so you know I, I give him some credit for that even if I must admit I was slightly sceptical as to whether that would actually work or not. Just to sort of finish on the West Ham game then you um, caught up with Nathan Redmond you obviously did a, a piece in the Echo and he um, started in the lineup yesterday um, you, you know again you mentioned about the service that um, Austin got and I appreciate it's not just Nathan Redmond but what did you kind of make of his comments which to me almost to a certain extent maybe summarised this season as a whole that it's been uh, you know everyone getting on each other's back and those sort of things and, and what did you sort of make of his performance yesterday did you feel that he, he did really offer anything to, to the team and make a, a, a point or do you think he sort of uh, is maybe going to take a bit of time to get up to speed again? Well, I think he will take a bit of time to get up to speed again. I think he, he fell into the category for me yesterday of one of those that at least kept plugging away. Um, I don't think anything went particularly well for him, but I think I at least would have appreciated that, that he did keep on trying, even if things weren't going well. And, and you know, we, we all have days like that so uh, where things don't go well, but it's about not throwing in the towel, which obviously some of them 
kind of have a few times this season. And I thought in terms of his comments, um, I was uh, struck by doing the interview that I did with him. He was very articulate. He was very considered. And uh, I got the impression that he kind of wanted to talk about his own form and the booing and the treatment and the abuse that he'd been kind of singled out for. I think he wanted to lay down a marker that he's accepted it, he's not bitter about it, and he's moving forward and he's over it. Um, and I, I was I was so impressed with him, to be honest with you, and that interview he did. It, it wasn't like a, sometimes you can be a bit over the top with these interviews. Go, oh, you know, they they just sort of acknowledged it. But actually, Redmond really, I felt, addressed the root of the problem um, and had obviously spent quite a lot of time thinking about it and looking in the mirror and analysing himself um, and his own performances, which I, th- I thought was a, was a good sign for a player um, and is obviously determined to try uh, and make the best of it. But ultimately, the difficulty for him, of course, is that he's had a lack of form, he's had a lack of games and he's in a team that is massively struggling. So to, to turn it around is a very difficult ask at this point in time for him but I, I was impressed with, with what he had to say and the way he said it In terms of this week then Adam, Saints obviously now need to go away and really try and decide what they're going to do, I, I know the media guys obviously get a bit of a battering for all the sort of positive posts and all those sort of things and the players as we know throughout the season are uh, very good at talking a good game but not necessarily delivering, I mean we, we seem to have spoken about it so many times now about this could be the turning point, this could be the game that really kicks them up the backside and it's just not done that I mean this is almost sort of last chance saloon now, they really need to go away and uh, decide whether they're just going to throw the, the towel in and just give up and go down with a whimper or you know, one final chance and one final hope as a fan base that they are actually going to put some effort in. We might see a refreshed team at Arsenal. Obviously, we'll come on to talk about that game in a minute, but actually just try and give this a final go if they really care about staying up. Well, I think that's what Hughes is going to say to them. I, I can't imagine he's going to say anything else. I'm sure he'll be laying it on the line to them. And, and like you said, it's difficult for the club as a whole. Uh, you know, I, I know a lot of the media guys there, obviously, very well. And... Um, yeah, I mean, they've got the most unenviable job at the moment. They've got to be putting some stuff out. They've got to be putting some content out. Uh, um, but obviously everything they do is just going to get hammered because people are in a bad mood with them in the same way that the job they've got is the best job and the easiest job when things are going well because they can put out, they've got access to all the content. They can put out loads of it and everybody just pats them on the back and say how marvellous it all is. So it's, you know, it's obviously entirely dependent on results, but the club have to try and remain positive whilst obviously not being ridiculous and rubbing it in people's faces that, that they're sort of out of touch with actually what the reality of the situation is and in terms of Hughes I, I, I totally think that he will sit them down and just say you know I don't, I don't even think it'll be a case of tearing into them or anything like that which I've said before I don't think that's really what he needs to do and I think he appreciates that it, but it'll be a case of saying look guys West Ham is at the level at which you you think you guys as players are at because if it is uh, you know forget getting your big moves in the summer or or any other ambitions you may have because you're not even going to stay in the Premier League you you know it's that bad it's up to you you do you want to try and fight or do you just want to give up and I think that's basically the challenge that Hughes will will have to lay on the line to them because there's there's nothing else you can do other than just hopefully get them thinking about it, the real reality of the situation they're in now, which is, quite simply, without an upturn in fortunes, very, very quickly, instantaneously, they're getting relegated. And that's as simple as that. And and there's no hiding away from that now. Um, Seven games to go, that's exactly where they are. So I would imagine 
Hughes will, will just be saying that. I mean, from his point of view, he can turn around and say, look, guys, I'm on a contract to the end of the season. You're not letting me down. Mm. You know, I, I, you know, I'll just go. I mean, you're not, you're not invested in me. I'm not saying, please do this for me because I need it for my, I don't need it for my career. It's you guys that need it. So it's up to you guys whether you want to do it or not. So, you know, go, go out there and show us whether you're interested or not. I, I think if I was him, that's just the line I would be taking with them just to say, you know, come on, it's, it's up to you guys. It's up to you guys. I'm not going to push you. I'm not going to try and motivate you, um, shout at you, cajole you. This is down to you. You, you as professionals and more than that, you as human beings. And really, what is your character? Is your character to fight when the chips are down or is your character to give up? Because everybody will be able to see it when you're out there on the pitch. Now, earlier this week, Adam and I were lucky enough to be invited to the Sea City Museum in Southampton for the official opening of the new Southampton We March On Then and Now exhibition. So rather than us wittering on about West Ham, we thought we'd share some of the best bits of the speeches from individuals including Saints chairman Ralph Kruger, Laurie McMenemy, Matt Letizier and Greg Baker, head of the Saints Foundation, who was one of the people involved in setting up the exhibition. We start with Councillor Satvir Kaur, who is a cabinet member for Communities, Culture and Leisure in Southampton. She spoke very proudly about the city and the exhibition, having helped to drive it all through. We are obviously here to launch this fantastic exhibition then and now with Southampton Football Club. And I'm delighted to see so many of you here, from the club owners, the chairman, staff, players, ex-players, and most importantly, fans. The nature of my role means that I do a number of these events throughout the city, celebrating Southampton and always trying to put us on the map. But there is something extra special about being here tonight. I'm born and bred Southampton's inner city. I grew up round the corner from St. Mary's Stadium. And it's true what they say, football and the Saints is the beating heart of our city. And for most Southampton's like me, is what we'd be most proud of when describing where we're from. Everything from learning how to chant Owen the Saints as a child, to seeing a sea of white and red shirts flood the streets on match day, to every pub in Southampton being absolutely packed. Because football, and being a Saints fan, is more than just a game. It's a way of life. It's part of our city's heritage and culture, and gives us a sense of belonging with fellow Saints fans becoming family. This exhibition is about celebrating that rich history and thriving culture. Saints have always had a strong spirit in the community and an army of loyal fans. And the journey this exhibition takes you on goes back to the very beginning in 1885, over 130 years ago. For us at Sea City, this was an obvious choice for a major exhibition. Our aim is to reach out to new audiences throughout the city who might not otherwise consider coming through those doors. Southampton's heritage and culture and telling our story is fundamental to this museum. 
and we want to ensure that our venues and collections are not only accessible to everyone, but relevant too. I sometimes feel like the city of Southampton is a bit like Southampton Football Club. Vibrant, diverse, oozing with talent and potential, and with a very, very bright future ahead. As I'm sure most of you have guessed, things like this just don't come together overnight. And this has been a long three years in the making. And it's been a close partnership working with the club, but it's not been possible without the input of club historians and fans who have generously contributed many objects and their stories which have made this exhibition what it is. Some of these things on show include the first trophy won by the club, the Hampshire Junior Club, kindly loaned by Southampton Schools FA, interview with the oldest living Saints player, Arthur House, who I'm really pleased to say is here tonight. His first game was in 1940. We've also interviewed a fan, Herbie Taylor, who went to his first match in 1940, who is also here tonight. I wanted to end by giving some important thank yous. As with most of these things, there are far too many people to thank, but to go through some special mentions, club historian Dave Dusson, who has provided much input into sections of the club's early history, ex-players and managers who have kindly agreed to be interviewed, including Laurie McMenemy, um, Mick Channon, Terry Payne, Matt Letizier, Kelvin Davis, and Arthur House. And can I just say a special thank you to, to ex-staff and ex-players in particular that have continued to contribute so much to civic life and Southampton since their time at the football club. It's really meant a lot and helped put Southampton on the map. All the lenders who have generously loaned objects to the exhibition, with particular thanks to Jerry Chalk, Tim Evans, Rich Birchley, and Kevin Thomas. Dan Matthews and the wider exhibitions and collections team within our Arts and Heritage Service here at the Council, who have worked tirelessly to put this all together, as well as the designer Jeff Bellingham and Mark and Claire Herbert, who have developed the audiovisual elements to the exhibition. Finally, the staff at the club, including Tom Cole and Terry Janes, and all the backroom staff, including the Staplewood, who, who contributed to the exhibition. But most crucially, a particular word of thanks has to go to Greg Baker. Without the hard work, commitment, passion of these people to see this through, this exhibition would not have happened. So can we please collectively give them a massive round of applause. I would now like to pass on to the club's chairman, Ralph Cougar. We've all had an opportunity to take a peek at the exhibition and I can tell you it was my first walk through and immediately I realized how humbling walking through an exhibition like that is as club chairman. Whether you're the chairman of the club today, or whether you're a board member, whether you're a staff member, whether you're a player or, or the manager of the team today, you realize when you walk through there, you are simply, and we are all simply, custodians of something much, much bigger than any of us as individuals. And 
the beautiful story of Southampton Football Club from then to now is, is going to be here for, for multiple months. Let's spread the word. I want to thank Councillor Corr and, your, and the City Council, of course, for making this possible. It started as a dream, and this dream has become reality here today. And you've already mentioned some and many of the people who have made this possible. But uh, one of the things about Southampton Football Club is we're, we are humble in understanding where we fit into the fabric of Southampton. We realize that the universities and the port, if you look around us, other clubs like the Hampshire Cricket Club, there's many other entities here in Southampton that are every single day out there sending a message to the world about this great city. We're all in it to have Southampton grow, to have Southampton become a destination, not only for people to visit as tourists, but to live in. And uh, whether you're a student or a business person, uh, we can feel the buzz and we can feel the growth. And I think we are proud as Southampton Football Club to be a centerpiece, as Councillor Corse said, uh, you know, part of the heartbeat of the, of the city. We understand our responsibility there. And, and this exhibition, of course, shows that beautiful history. I'd like to I'd like to take the opportunity really to bring a few people up here, uh, let their voices speak about the history, and I want to begin with somebody uh, extremely loyal and the manager of the century in Southampton. You know, he spent 12 years here as a manager. It's amazing to coach, to coach 12 years in, in one city and to have won the great FA Cup where we are now in the semifinal and dreaming of joining you in that in that group of very special people uh, but Laurie could you come up here and just say a few words to everybody uh, a big hand please for Laurie McKenna very humble very delighted to see my name up on the wall 12 years I'm flattered by that it's actually 45 years <laughs> uh, part of the history but we all live in clubs like Arsenal, Liverpool, Newcastle, and that, what's that lot up the road? We're blue shirts. We're <laughs> all living there. So the history of this club goes way, way back. I came 45 years ago, and over the years I've been involved at different levels. Not so much now, mind, but never mind. Um, and the one thing that struck me and everybody was the boardroom. The directors in those days, people might remember, were only worldly gentlemen who had businesses in the area and they represented the man on the terrace. They were the most popular club in the top flight. I immediately got relegated, uh, <laughs> third bottom, and the chairman said, sold it out, and he walked away. And the chairman, by the way, I don't know whether you know of, Refereed the World Cup final. Yes, yes, I just you knew that. Yeah. Yeah, I know, I just learned that. I just noticed, yeah. <laughs> he refereed the World Cup final, so he knew all about football, and he got, it meant it helped that I'd won the league at four previous clubs. Otherwise, I'd have been out the door, I know that. They stood by me two years later, we won the Cup, thanks to Mick Channon and the other lads. And I looked up, and they were there, stood by the Queen. I think it was the last game she was at. Couldn't have been that bad a game, really. But, <laughs> and uh, I looked up and I looked at the directors and I said, thank you for standing by me. And that's what, the way they were. They allowed me to start academies and in Newcastle, in Bristol, and there was one in London. And that produced many, many 
young players who eventually played for the country. And they stood by you as a manager. And I left eventually. Jimmy Tarbuck famously said, he's a comedian, Jimmy Tarbuck. <laughs> he famously said, what if Laurie and the Titanic got in common? Neither one should have left Southampton. <laughs> and he was, he was dead right. The directors, well, I remember, some of the older generation might remember, there was the chairman, George Sir George Merrick. He owned half a Bournemouth, Merrick Park, he owned a castle in Anglesey, and there was another gentleman, Basil Boyer, who was chairman of the brewery. That helped. The players used to like to visit him. Uh, John Corbett, who won lots of land near Winchester. And then Mr. Charles Chaplin. Not the Charlie Chaplin, but a uh, lovely, lovely gentleman, curly grey hair. And he wore a monocle and a fresh carnation. And once they were on a plane, they'd been away, and he hadn't been well. And the chairman said to the doctor, if you sit next to him, because if he's not well, get the tablets ready. The plane took off, Mr. Chapman pulled the button, the, the stewardess came up, yes sir, he said, have you a glass of water, my dear? And she dashed off, cut the water, and the doctor started getting the tablets, he said, thank you very much. And he took his carnation out and put it in the glass. <laughs> <laughs> that was the sort of director we had. They were people who stood by you, and uh, I should never have left, I could have stayed on. Ted Bates, bless him, before me, 18 years. I was 12 years, two managers in 30 years. Can you imagine that now? Oh. <laughs> but this club was one of the most popular, and it still is, it still is. And you talk about the cup, already I've had people stopping me, and most of them don't want to talk about the, the Saturday, they want to remind me of the day after, on the open top bus. It was always going to be, well, we won, lost, a drove. 45 minutes it was going to take, it took four and a half hours, <laughs> remember? And uh, happy days. Now, we move forward. The cup is in everybody's mind. Get it to the back of your head. We've got four big games before then. We need everybody's support. The manager, in my opinion, right appointment. When we manage, top to bottom. When they signed the youngins like young Mr. Letizia, Alan Shearer and company, I went... I met their parents, watched them train, brought them through. And that's the way Mark Hughes will think. He'll think like a manager. Our players didn't need coaching this season. They needed managing. And if he can get the same effort that he got in his first game, I'm sure it would be safe. And we can go to the semi-final and enjoy it. Thank you for asking me at the night. And thank you very much. Very good, Larry. Um, what's the Honorary Freedom of City of Southampton Award? Um, I, my wife Anne and I have been clearing out 40 odd years of, of rubbish, really. Uh, I've had to read everything. And I discovered that, it's stuck in the corner. And uh, I was very fortunate, I got the Freedom of the City. Which means I'm allowed to walk with a flock of sheep. <laughs> Did you not know that? Well, there you go, you see. Yeah, I, I can take a flock of sheep anywhere, anytime. And then, but what I didn't realise, and I forgot until I found that, the club also got the freedom in the city. 
And uh, so we can still take sheep. Yes, <laughs> you can take sheep. With some of the teams I've seen, you've had sheep on the field, but never mind. <laughs> Let's, let's go forward. <laughs> so I would also like to thank two of the builders of, of what we're what we're witnessing here. Greg, just step out in front of everybody here for a sec and uh, answer one question. That's all, so that you, you get to make yeah, this is a surprise. No, Greg, what was what was the most difficult challenge? I know you were here on the weekends. You've been here uh, much, much over and beyond with your team. You put this together. People that you told me a few stories back there about people in the city, fans getting involved. Just just let everybody know how it was to build this thing and how how willing people were to help you. Yeah, I mean, it's been incredible. I mean, the club historians have been mentioned. Um, you know, they've been absolutely fantastic. What they don't know about Southampton really doesn't happen. Um, so it's been incredibly fun. Um, you know, we've held memorabilia days here and at the stadium where people have brought in all kinds of things, things that we didn't know existed, um, which are in the exhibition. Um, and no, it's been a really fascinating journey. But I mean, Dan is the man. He's been absolutely <laughs> spectacularly good, and he's been great to work with. Um, as have the last, um, you know, the last couple of weeks. Dan's team here as well have worked incredibly hard to put that together. Um, so, you know, it's been a fascinating journey and, and, you know, first and foremost, apart from being an employee, I'm a fan, um, so this is kind of a dream for me to kind of be able to pull this together um, with Dan um, and, you know, it's been a, been a fascinating journey, two years in the making and I'm glad that we've, uh, we've got it done, but you could carry on forever, you could literally find a different story every day. I love that. When I was walking around with Greg, he said, if I had to do this the rest of my life, I would be happy. So maybe we can, we can work on that. Dan, can you come up here for a second, please? Thank you, Greg. So Dan Matthews and his team, Sea City Museum, have uh, put this together. They've, they've dug out all kinds of contracts from the 30s, Dan, that we didn't know existed. And uh, Dan, just, just give us a little bit of background to what the ride was like to finish off this presentation. Well, where, where do I start? Um, <clears throat> like you said earlier, it's been a long, a long journey. About three years ago, we, we, we kind of approached the club and said, you know, we're really interested to do an exhibition about the club. You know, there's, there's, there's so much passion and commitment in the city. We want to reflect that in the museum. Um, the club were very interested. And from that moment on, you know, we had, like Greg mentioned, the, the, the fans' days. And just getting people in and seeing the enthusiasm and the passion in their eyes. And once people start talking about the club, they just don't stop. And we really wanted to reflect that in the exhibition. And I hope we've captured that. And, and I, I know a lot of people personally who have lent objects and have, have told us stories that are in the exhibition. And I just want to personally thank everyone here who's been part of that. Because without, without all your kind of commitment and, and, and generosity of bringing things in, we couldn't have done this. And I hope it's a reflection of the city in that way. Um, but no, it's been it's been fantastic. It's been a bit of a roller coaster ride since the last couple of months. Objects have been turning up in the last couple of days that we've we've tried to shoehorn in. Um, but no, it's been great, and, and and we're delighted with the outcome. And I hope everyone's really happy with it. And I hope, we hope we get a lot of fans here over the course. It's going to be on for seven months, so uh, which is great. Um, so we on over the summer and into next season. So we've had a legend as a manager up here. And I'd like to get a legend as a player. 16 years here in Southampton, also something that is rare and uh, a clutch player, somebody who really knew how to win in big games and show up for the team all the time. I, 
and has become a, a very, very important council to me personally over the last five years. I've really enjoyed every, every single day that I have with him. He teaches me a lot about football when we're together. So I'd like to bring Matt Lutissier up here, please. I know, I know Matt doesn't drink, so he wasn't at the bar. <laughs> I was just under the back, so I couldn't hear Laurie. There's no change there, then. No, I've had a brief look through, and I'll take a longer look through, but it is fabulous for me, even as a as a player for 17 years here, or 16 as a professional. I knew quite a lot of the history of the football club. I immersed myself in the club. But even for me, going through there was fascinating, and I hope it is the same for everyone else that, that goes through there because uh, it really is a special place. It's, you know, the best 16 years of my life um, without any shadow of a doubt. I mean, sat on the television on a Saturday afternoon talking about football's fun and all that, but <laughs> never really replaces actually running out on a pitch on a Saturday as uh, the boys that are here tonight will tell you. So uh, I hope everybody enjoys uh, what they've seen. I personally, I don't know about you lot, and I don't want to put Ralph under any pressure, it would be lovely to see something like that permanently at the stadium, in my opinion. It's just such a lovely thing. No pressure. But I do, I was just walking through there and I thought, you know, some lovely stuff there. And, and if people were kind enough to be able to loan them on a permanent basis to the club, and I know that's difficult and you know, people want their stuff back. Um, <laughs> you can have my boot, I don't care, I don't wear any more. I'm a size nine now, anyway. <laughs> Um, but no, it, it would be pretty special and I just hope that everybody, uh, Southampton have been very special to me, you know, I, I'm just a little kid from Guernsey when I came across here at 16 and very quickly the city took me to their hearts uh, and the, the people in that football stadium were one of the, the main reasons why I stayed at Southampton Football Club for, for my entire career, no question about that um, and to this day, you know, I think you've seen on the television on a Saturday, I can be a little bit biased <laughs> on occasions, uh, I think people could can understand that given the, the affinity that I've had with this football club over such a long period of time and it's been a pleasure with me to get to know you know not, not only Ralph but the, the, the other guys uh, down at the football club it's it's kind of been a, an interesting few years since I've retired you know we've gone plenty of ups and downs um, but it's been it's been lovely that I can still be made welcome uh, down the football club now because there was a couple of years there <laughs> wasn't quite so nice uh, <laughs> But um, I have to say, it, it's, it's been a pleasure and an honour for me uh, to, to not only represent Southampton Football Club, uh, but to represent the city of Southampton. So Matt, we're really pleased that a few of our, our players are here today. Nathan is here, Prowsey's here, Fraser's here. Uh, but the ultimate 11 back in there, we've already heard from Laurie who's the Ultimate Eleven manager. There's a few others here in the room. I saw, uh, you know, it was, it was interesting watching on the weekend, uh, Wayne Bridge. Where are you, Wayne? So we've never met, he's waiting right there. So Wayne, I, I come from ice hockey and we do what you were doing on the weekend all the time. <laughs> Wayne uh, was boxing this weekend, right? Was that this weekend? Yeah, and you're, you're okay? <laughs> So maybe maybe uh, tell us a little. What what do you know about Wade? Uh, you know, on the ultimate. Uh, yeah, no, I mean I think it's a, a, a obviously a fantastic choice um, 
Franny Benali will be a bit pissed off in the morning, but you know. <laughs> but pretty, pretty, it was, it was quite funny actually. Pretty, I don't know if, if, uh, if he actually acknowledges this, but I think uh, Dave Jones, who was the manager at the time when Wayne made his debut, Wayne actually made his debut as a left winger uh, in the side. Uh, and to be fair, he was a pretty average left winger. <laughs> And Dave Jones, Dave Jones decided actually, with his qualities, he should be playing left back. And Dave Jones not only moved into left back, but I'll never forget, he went in the local paper, they did an interview, and he went, Wayne Bridge will play left back for England. And I read that and I went, is he sure? <laughs> and fair play to him, because he went on to do that and, uh, and had a brilliant career at left back as well. So yeah, it was fantastic. I played with Bridgie for a couple of years before, uh, before I retired, so he, he kind of, he didn't see the best of me, but I saw most of the best of him. <laughs> Mick, are you here, Mick Shannon? Where are you, Mick? Can you put your hand up, Mick? Mick, I'll, I'll look for you for a drink afterwards, but definitely, definitely uh, know about the history and uh, quite, quite, a, quite a wonderful history it is reading about it. And maybe, Matt, you can tell us a little bit about Mick. We're happy to see him here today. I know he's, he's in other sport now. But uh, but what was, what was he like when he was back in football? Well, uh, obviously I was a little boy watching Mick play. Uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, unfortunately our careers didn't quite overlap in terms of uh, the Southampton bit. But he was he was still playing uh, at some crap club down the road for a couple of bits. But we, we won't mention that. Um, uh, but no, I, I Mick was obviously a very big part of my career because obviously being at Southampton for that long and scoring that many goals. Uh, every time I kind of got closer to the next person in the list of the all-time top goalscorer, the ultimate aim was to obviously get to that man there uh, on 2.27, I think it was by memory. Uh, and sadly for me, um, the legs gave way uh, just uh, about 20 short of what he had. So um, he, he forever reminds me about that, as does his son. <laughs> um, but I have to say, growing up watching him play as a kid was just fantastic. You know, I mean... He was uh, one of those players that um, I, I like to think that, that people enjoyed watching me come and play football and, and right, sometimes I was crap and I didn't do a lot, but then you'd kind of do something and, uh, and in, that, in that game uh, you'd kind of do something that where the crowd went home afterwards and thought, do you know what, the admission fee alone was worth watching that uh, and that is definitely what Mick Shannon was like for me as a boy. And the last one represented here uh, from the Ultimate Eleven uh, is Alan Ball, is represented by his daughter, sadly passed away uh, a decade ago, and uh, Alan was a was an absolute hero in the club too, Matt. What, what can you tell us about Alan? Uh, well, I can tell you he's the, um, he's the only one in that Eleven with a World Cup winner's medal, I know that much. Uh, uh, and I didn't obviously get to play alongside Alan as a player, uh, but I was fortunate enough that him along, along with Laurie as director of football at the time in the mid-90s when kind of the best period of my career, Alan was my manager and um, uh, it was just for me to get to know somebody like that, somebody who is standing in the game, such a, a, an unbelievable footballer, um, but more than that, uh, he was an unbelievable bloke. I mean, the, I loved just being in his company, you know, we kept in touch way after he uh, stopped managing the club and uh, I just, uh, it was just such a sad day. Ten years ago, when uh, when you know he was taken far too early from us, he was a, just a lovely man to be around. His positivity, with everything that he loved in his life, was just brilliant. He spoke so highly of his of his football, of his racing, you know, his family, and it was just 
a real pleasure to be around as a bloke, and, and I, for one, uh, miss him uh, quite a lot. And I thank everybody for coming here today. One person I'd like to bring up here in closing is, uh, as I said, we have many custodians of the club right now. We have a huge responsibility, and there's, uh, we've had an ownership change that, uh, that has, been, has allowed us to continue to operate as a club and to, you know, to begin our next phase of, of growth. And I'd like to bring Nellie Gao up here just to say a few words. She's come from China to be a part of the exhibition. Nellie didn't expect this, so Nellie, I'm going to give you the microphone here for a minute. Ralph, make me nervous. <laughs> Good evening. Uh, I'm very happy to be here tonight, and I would like to say a big thank you to everybody who, who have put this uh, wonderful exhibition together. So I wish you all have enjoyable evening. Thank you. What we felt here in the stories, especially now from Matt and Lori, is the history of this club, how it's, you know, it came alive in their stories and in their comments, but it's alive in the museum. Enjoy it here tonight, and let's all go out and spread the word. And I think Matt's message about trying to keep this alive, Dan, when it's all over, said and done, is, is in the cards. So I, I thank you all for the support you give Southampton Football Club. All the best for this exhibition. Thank you. The Sea City Museum exhibition is on until the 28th of October and only £3.50 a ticket, well worth a visit with 132 years of memorabilia and stories. And thanks to those who allowed us to record and share the clips on the podcast as well. Right, next up it's a daunting visit to the Emirates Stadium for Saints and Arsenal. Adam, a tough looking game before the defeat at West Ham, but probably looking even tougher now. Well, yeah, um, it does look it does look tough. I mean, I guess if, of all the teams that, that you know the top the, the bigger clubs that Saints have left to play Arsenal are probably the, the most fragile most brittle most get atable of all the teams up there obviously they're having a, a season that you would say for them is at best average um, so they, they are kind of um, there feels like there is some potential but you still have to be realistic and say that they've still got some very good players they're playing at home what exactly they're playing for, I guess, is is harder to uh, perhaps pin down to a certain extent, just because they are, um, you know, they're, they're obviously from their by their own high standards somewhat languishing. Saints can't be worried anymore. They can't be fearful um, of, of playing teams like that, of of games like that, because th- these are games that they're going to have to get points out of now because they they've gone. Uh, past the point of just being able to get the points against the teams around them and that being enough, they're going to have to take some points from some difficult games. And the, the truth is, I mean, Mark Hughes has said it, they really need to just need to win some matches. It's not a, a case even of, you, you don't, it, as creditable as going to the Emirates and getting a point would be, is it going to be that big a point really? You feel like they they really need some wins they need some three points and this is the difficulty really they're gonna need i i would suggest even if 
other teams do badly and results go their way. Yes, they're going to need some draws, but they're going to need a minimum of two victories in the last seven, possibly three, but mm. certainly they're going to need two, two plus probably you know a, a fair old virtually unbeaten run to have got some other points on the board as well, but maybe even three. And they've won five in th- in what thirty one so far. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this is the thing is, and as creditable as a draw Arsenal would be, I feel like if you draw with Arsenal, then realistically, the way this, the season's unravelling now, again, looking at this, you know, looking at more than just one game at a time in a way, that means they'll probably have to beat Chelsea, really, to not get cut adrift. And once yeah. you, as we said, once you get cut adrift, you cut adrift four or five games to go. You're not, you, realistically, it's, you know, it's curtains pretty much. So the, they, they can't fear it. They, they've got to go there. And just try and win the game. It's as simple as that. I mean, it's, it's that is an incredibly, incredibly difficult task, but that is just simply where they are now. And I guess clutching at straws a little bit, Arsenal are one of those teams that on their day, as you say, can tear you apart. But as we saw at St Mary's, you know, Saints played fantastically for 80 minutes and arguably deserved to, to win that game. You, you never quite know with Arsenal which Arsenal side is going to turn up. No, I mean, th- this is exactly it. I think, um, I think from Saints' point of view, Arsenal... When you look at Arsenal, uh, Chelsea, Man City, for example, to come, um, you you look at Arsenal as probably being the most winnable. The Chelsea, you're suddenly relying on, well, maybe they they might have an off day or they're resting a few players or something like that, and um, and, and that plays into Saints' hands with... Man City, you're talking about, well, they'd obviously already have won the Premier League by then. What will their post-season, uh, post-Premier League season commitments look like in terms of the Champions League by then? Maybe they'll rest some players or maybe they won't be that motivated. You're relying on, I think you're relying on things like that. You're relying on the opposition giving you a chance, really. I don't think Arsenal's necessarily like that. I think with them, they, they are, they are kind of beatable, if you like. They are, there is a certain brittleness to them. Um, especially defensively, and that is something that maybe Saints could expose. It's not easy. I mean, you look at their attacking abilities, and yeah, well, they they're likely to cause significant number of problems for Saints defensively. And obviously, they are at home. They do have the motivation of they've obviously had a, a big lull themselves this season, and they're trying, I think, as best they can to finish on as much of a high as they can. So it's not going to be easy, but this is the situation Saints are in. And I guess the other positive, and I really, really am clutching at straws now because they're both home games, but obviously they're playing today, Easter Sunday, so that's 24 hours after Saints. And then they've also got a game against CSK Moscow on Thursday at the the Emirates as well, which just will give them sort of three days turnaround. So again, I'm really clutching at straws, trying to look for positives here, Adam, as we always do. But I guess that's the other thing as well. At least Saints will go into that game a lot fresher than the Arsenal squad. Yeah, and we, and we also know, having seen that the Saints, I know last year, that, that it's not easy to to manage the two competitions. And obviously for Arsenal, in truth, they're, they're marooned in the table somewhat. And the uh, Europa League is obviously a route back to the Champions League, which they're not mm. going to realistically get through the Premier League this year. And so you would think, logically, that the, the Europa League may well be their best bet. Um, and therefore, that that's slightly more important to them than the Saints game. However, it obviously, it is worth saying that I think all these Arsenal games are at home. Yeah. Um, so, it's, yes, it's tiring for them to a degree. But at the same time, they haven't got to go to Moscow and come back. They go to Moscow the week after 
um, the Saints game. And indeed, of course, the Saints game got moved back from the Monday back to the Sunday, which I think is what Arsenal wanted mm. um, because it gave them more time to recover for the and travel for the away leg. Uh, they'll, they'll obviously be rotating players, but they've got a big squad. They've got a deep squad there. I, I think probably will fatigue play a big issue. I doubt it because, like I said, I think they will probably rotate quite a lot. So it'll probably more be, will they get a chance to play an Arsenal team shorn of a few of its stars? either through injury or through rotation. Um, and and maybe, maybe that's the best hope. But whatever happens, whatever Arsenal team goes out, they're going to have some ability. And ultimately, Saints aren't going to beat them if they play like they have done recently. If they play like they did against West Ham, Wigan, Newcastle, they, they won't win. So, I mean, it's as simple as that. It doesn't matter what team Arsenal put out, they won't win. So... I think it is a lot of um, there are, that's worth talking about, but it is obviously straw clutching because so much of this is still within Saints' hands, despite the situation they're in. They can still get out of it. They're not relegated yet, but they obviously have to have a massive upturn in performances uh, to get the results they need. Looking at it from a Saints point of view, finally then, you mentioned Oreo Romeo earlier. I guess you think about sort of players like Steve Davis as well, his experience, but then you also sort of the, look at the youth and the flair of players like maybe Josh Sims or even Jake Heskis, someone like that. So from your point of view, Adam, looking at the Arsenal game, going into it from a, a Saints view, what would you look to do with the team? I mean, again, I know it's hard to, to sort of say what may happen in terms of injuries this week or training and those sorts of things, but is there certain particular players that you'd be looking to, to bring back in for that game? I just would want the team full of the biggest characters that you've got or the biggest triers that you've got, really, and, and even if they're not as good. So I, to be honest, I would probably be looking at getting in uh, Ma Yoshida, I'd probably get in Oriol Romeu. I'd probably get in Shane Long. Yep. Um, I would certainly um, at, at least have Josh Sims on the bench. Um, I would probably toy with the idea of getting James Ward-Prowse in the team if, I, if there was a way. I mean, that might depend a little bit on formations and things. I do appreciate that. Um, yeah, I, I would, those, those are the, I think, off the top of my head, those are the guys that I would be thinking, right, they're the ones that I want. If I was... I put myself in their position. If I, if one of those, if you're going into battle, who would I want to look around and see alongside me? Well, it wouldn't be. There might be some players who go, well, they're technically really good, but if they're not going to fight, that's not the player I want alongside me. I want somebody who's going to fight and who's going to graft, and that's your best chance of getting a result against the likes of Arsenal. Um, you're not going to go out and outflare them, so um, you know you you need to fight. So those are the guys that I would be looking at. I certainly would get be getting Yoshida. Romeu and uh, Long in the starting eleven, uh, and then, like I said, I think Sims maybe maybe bench realistically, but as an impact player for for later on, I think. And yeah, there's going to be some big names, some big reputations, and some players who were signed for some very very big money who are going to end up being the ones uh, getting axed. But if they're not performing, so be it. Right, let's end with a, a prediction. They almost seem irrelevant these days, but uh, I'll, I'll go first, Adam, just for a change, because uh, I'll go back to uh, everyone uh, should know I'm going to sort of revert to, to norm here. So I'm going for 2-0 to Arsenal. I think uh, the, the wheels have come off with Saints. I think they've uh, thrown the towel in personally. I think Mark Hughes is uh, fighting a, a lone battle. But uh, yeah, I'm going to go for 2-0 to Arsenal, I'm afraid, Adam. But uh, can you do any better than that? Well, I'm sort of toying with it. I mean, everything tells me it will be uh, an Arsenal win. You know, you can't really, on the evidence of what you've seen against West Ham, I don't, I don't know what else you can say, even if you're being optimistic. I mean, I, I think Saints will give a reaction. And to be fair, again, 
this year they have picked up some points against the bigger teams. They gen- generally have actually upped their game when they've played the bigger sides. And so that gives me some confidence. But, I mean, it's going to be tough to go there and win. I mean, the optimistic part of me would call a one-all draw. I think, though, if I'm trying to be utterly honest about it, I would probably side with you, actually. And just as boring as it is, I would go 2-0. But I can't do that because, obviously, <laughs> I'm in desperate need of points as are Saints. And so... I will go for a 2-1 uh, Arsenal victory in that case. <laughs> I thought you were going to go for something a lot more positive there, but no, that's fair enough. So, uh, well, what can good. you say? You just, I mean, I, I, like I said, the positive yeah, part of me yeah. says that they can get a point, and there is there is an argument for that based on the fact that they have up their game against the big teams. You, you would hope there would be a reaction to, to last week, and I think he will make changes that will be um, for the better. But ultimately... The, the, you know, after after having watched Newcastle, uh, Wigan, and uh, West Ham, and they're going away to Arsenal, I'm trying to just I'm predicting with logic, I think, rather than uh, rather than anything else. And so uh, you would think that Arsenal will probably just about have too much for them. Thanks as always for listening to our podcast. I'm sure you all appreciate how hard it is to try and keep the podcast positive and or constructive, as well as honest with everything going on the pitch currently, but we're trying. My thanks to Adam for taking the time to join us and have a chat about his thoughts and views. As ever, Adam, really appreciate the honesty and uh, I know it's tough for you in the uh, the position of watching every game and seeing everything as well to remain level-headed, but it is appreciated. TSP wishes you and your families a happy Easter and let's all remember there are more important things in life than football, so they say. I've been Ben Stanfield. This has been Total Saints Podcast. Keep marching in. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximise your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odour control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.